Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. This is Adam. Today on the show, Richard and I are going to talk in depth about hubs and bridges. We get into what these devices are and what purpose they solve. And in the second half of the show, we get into a good old-fashioned debate about the merits of these types of devices. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Hey everyone, I'm Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. And on today's show, Adam and I are going to dive deep into the topic of smart home hubs and bridges. Hey Adam. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well, trying to stay healthy, stay inside. Kind of crappy weather here anyway, so it's easy to do that today. But we have a topic that I've wanted to discuss for a while now, and you and I come at this from, as always, different perspectives. You're looking at it from a manufacturer's perspective and from a user's perspective, and I'm really looking at it primarily from a consumer perspective. And that is, like, what is it with all these hubs and bridges and services and everything else that we see today sometimes being used, sometimes not being used. Why are they? What are they? And uh, really, really dive deep into that topic. So uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, excited to talk about it. But before we get into that, we got to open the show with a question. So question for Richard. This is one of those things where people fall into a camp. Are you team Coke or Pepsi? <laughs> uh, Coke, all the way. And uh, there's a little bit of a background to that, as there is with everything with me. So I actually collect Coca-Cola stuff. Like, I, my bar area in the family room is just wall-to-wall -wall Coke stuff. And I think that's a fraction of the things that I own. So memorabilia, stuff from the company, bottles, cans, commemorative stuff. Uh, but... I've always really preferred Coke and, you know, I'm at the same time, I at least have been, I don't know if I'll continue to be now, but I've been a Marriott guy for years and years and years and they're a Pepsi shop and it, it frustrates me to no end when I go someplace like a hotel or a stadium or something like that and I can only get Pepsi. Yeah. So the, the inevitable, uh, I'll take a Coke, please. Uh, we have Pepsi. Fine. Oh, no, see, that's worse. That's worse. I'm like, no, it's Coke or it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Yeah. So for me, well, for one, I try not to drink any soda these days. Probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, I kind of gave it up altogether. I would say my answer is neither. I'm a Dr. Pepper person. Ah. So hardcore. And my, my story about Dr. Pepper was... Um, I used to travel 100% for work. So 100 flights a year, every week, Monday morning, get on a plane, Thursday night, fly home. And at one point, I was traveling back and forth from Philadelphia, and 
I was pretty heavily dieting and was trying to mostly give up soda and just really being focused on calories. But my like reward for myself every week was one can of Dr. Pepper on my flight home from Philadelphia. <laughs> and I would get so grumpy if like the flight attendant wouldn't give me a can. And I, I learned the trick of you have to say, I'll have a can of Dr. Pepper. And usually they'll give you a whole can. But they gave me that one cup, man. There was a really grumpy, uh, a grumpy guy who who wanted his his one soda for the week. His full fix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if I did have to pick one of these, I would probably pick uh, Coke as well. Ah, okay. Uh, you know the the one thing that I've always liked about Dr Pepper is that their diet version. When when I eventually realized that I probably don't need the entire sugar intake of a day in just one of the sodas that I was drinking. And I used to drink like three or four a day. Then I switched to diet. And the diet Dr. Pepper tastes almost identical to regular Dr. Pepper. It is way, way, way better than Diet Coke was. It's more like the comparison between, I would say, Coke Zero and Coke, uh, which is much closer to the recipe. I, too, have tried not to drink soda anymore at all. I do cheat occasionally. I like the the new Coke Zero orange vanilla thing i have some of them in the fridge they're amazing yeah i mean with all things <laughs> moderation so yes exactly and uh if you want to submit a question for us to open the show you can send us a question using the hashtag ask adam and richard on twitter all right so let's dive into it the first thing that i want to do is kind of establish a baseline on what is a hub and what's a bridge what differentiates them? Who's using them? Why are they using them? And then talk about some other kind of hybrid solutions that we're seeing out there as well. And the first thing, let's look at hubs in general. I, I would define a hub, and you know, I'm not pulling this from any official source or anything, but from my experience in the industry, and Adam, I'd like you to please correct me if you feel differently about any of this, but I would define a hub as a wired or wireless central controller that allows and facilitates disparate devices to work together. Yeah, I think that's a fair definition. You know, maybe a good way to categorize that would be offering support for more than one radio type. That's what I would probably, in my mind, typically consider a hub. If you're just talking to one one particular type of a device or radio or anything proprietary. Yep. That's probably more a bridge, but somebody that supports Z-Wave, Zigbee, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, you know, multiple radios under one hood, that's probably a hub. Yeah, I would agree with that for the most part. I think that is a, a good way of differentiating them. And, you know, as an example of a general consumer hub today, I would say that probably the most popular one is smart things. Smart things it kind of is the last survivor, if you will, of the consumer hubs these days. The only thing that you're still seeing if you walk into a big box store and want to buy yourself a smart home system that does use any sort of hub and spoke model. And so there used to be more. You know, we still have Wink technically, but who knows how long that's going to be around. There used to be Staples Connect. There used to be Lowe's Iris. There used to be Revolve. Revolve, I think, was originally a Kickstarter project that at $300 was 
the both the most expensive and most capable of the different hub solutions out there because it had every radio in it. It had like seven different radios in it and could communicate to all these different systems. So notice that I said used to, like all of those things have kind of gone away and you could call out bad business decisions on many of those companies part. But I think what we've also seen is just like a pushback from consumers on hub technology. Either it's not something that they understand or that they want to deal with or that they want to spend money on or whatever. And we'll talk a little bit more about the pros and cons of these things in our next segment. But we we have definitely seen a lot of these things go the wayside. Now, in the meantime, we still see other systems out there that kind of fall into this category. Like if you buy a pro system like Fabaro or Nexia or something like that, that would be installed by an installer, they all have some sort of central hub with multiple radios in it. If you have a security system like ADT or Vivint or Alarm.com, they're based on hubs these days. They also support the standard, I think it's 433 uh, megahertz radios that is common among security wireless devices, but they're usually also smart home hubs. And then, of course, you have high-end controllers for these custom systems like Control 4 and the like, but those are usually actually like computers, right? like a full-blown computer that also has a bunch of radios connected to it. To to your point about some of these devices that are no longer, and, and I know we've kind of hashed that out on a lot of previous episodes, but I think some of that is uh, is business model related. And so the ones that have survived have a business model that backs supporting all these devices on all these different radios in an ongoing basis. And to smart things, they may not have the business model, but they're backed by Samsung and so Samsung has the resources to support that full ecosystem and a wide variety of radios and things like that. Plus, it has a very vibrant community that supports it as well, um, which I think is the other piece. Right. And so some of those other systems didn't either A, have the business model or the community to support it. And so they just kind of died. Yeah. And that community is really key. And we see that community come into play a lot in the hobbyist space. One area where I think hubs have succeeded, perhaps not to the extent that they would if they had popular consumer acceptance, but in the hobbyist community, you have new products like Hubitat and older, oftentimes decade or more older controllers and hubs like the Vera or the ISY or Homeseer's Home Troller. These are multi-radio hubs that have been out there and have a lot of support from developers in the community to kind of keep them alive and keep them going and help sustain them beyond what just the company behind them might do. Like if you bought, for example, a Staples Connector Lowe's Iris, which were both of those were closed systems. Right. So that's that's kind of you know, the, a survey of what's out there from a hub perspective. I'm sure there are more. We haven't talked about all of them. There are some hybrids that we'll discuss a little bit later. But now let's take a look at bridges. I 
differentiate a hub and a bridge, like you said, that basically is it one radio that it's kind of connecting to everything else or is it multiple? And so to me, that is very clearly the definition then. It, I, I, I look at a bridge as a wired or wireless translation or aggregation device for some other control signal. And, you know, the, the most common example that I can think of in the smart home space is probably Philips Hue. Right. And it's one of the first things that many general consumers were exposed to was the Philips Hue bridge that you have to have if you want that you used to have to have <laughs> if you wanted to use Philips Hue bulbs at all in your home. Right. Well, and you still have to have if you want to use Philips Hue Zigbee bulbs. So this is a Zigbee hub. And I was going to say, you know, one other characteristic of a hub typically is it only supports that company's products. That wasn't always true with the Philips Hue bridge. You mean of a bridge? Right, of a bridge. Yep. Um, was that the Philips Hue bridge at one time I know supported other Zigbee devices and, and I believe they kind of walked that back, probably for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, which is that they couldn't or didn't want to support other devices on their bridge. Right. My understanding is that they didn't want to have to support them, but it is possible to pair other Zigbee devices to your Philips Hue bridge again. They they opened that door a little bit to some specific vendors, or maybe it has to do with like a, a specific way that you're interfacing with them. But as an example, there's a company, I believe it's German or Dutch called Inner, I-N-N-R. They make bulbs and smart plugs, very inexpensive Zigbee devices. They are 100% compatible with the Philips Hue Bridge. Now, Signify does not expose them to HomeKit. It doesn't allow you to then control them through the other devices that might be able to work with Philips Hue. And that's understandable because they haven't been certified by Apple and things like that. Right. Whether we've talked about this or not, I'll, I'll raise this point right now, which is that the way that the HomeKit certification works specifically for bridges is that you must certify your bridge and you must certify all devices that will work with that bridge. It feels like every year or so, somebody comes out and they say they're going to build a, a HomeKit hub or bridge or whatever. And everybody's like, oh, yay, now I'll be able to hook up my rogue Zigbee devices or, or Z-Wave devices to HomeKit. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, if, a, if that company puts out a hub or a bridge and certifies certain devices with it, yes, those will work. But this is not going to be a, you know, catch-all, now everything can be on HomeKit. Yeah, open the flood doors kind of thing. And so I, I like the way you just explained that because that helped clarify what you were saying. It's not that you have to certify every device that your bridge can support with Apple. It's that you have to certify every device that you want Apple to allow on their ecosystem that you support. Right. Because you can still have these other third-party devices or even your own devices that you choose not to include in what you expose to HomeKit. Right. 
Yeah, and of course, there's always the catch-all of um, using something like Homebridge, but that's like unsupported. You get a warning, all that kind of stuff. So, I think you know there are still ways to do that, but it's not officially blessed. Yeah, one of these days I need to experiment with that just to see how how good, bad, or problematic that really is. Anyway, so you know, Philips Hue probably what most people are familiar with. That is an existing protocol of Zigbee. Sengled is basically using a similar model. They have Zigbee Bolds that uses what they call a hub. It's not a hub, it's a bridge. It's it's just connecting their Zigbee devices to your network, to Wi-Fi and uh Ether well, to to your network, to your your homeland so that it can be used throughout your home and remotely. Now, oftentimes people use a bridge because they're system has its own protocol. And the couple of examples that I could think of here were probably the most familiar to people is Lutron. Lutron uses ClearConnect to communicate wirelessly between its devices. ClearConnect is awesome. It's a fantastic protocol. It is not compatible with anything else. I'm fairly sure it's like their own version of like 433 though. Like it's not... I know it's it's clear connect it's they that's the way they branded it but I'm pretty sure uh, at a you know protocol level it's it's running over 433 That's fine um interestingly that makes me want to try it with my bond bridge so I might have to see how that works but how do you get that on your network you have to have a bridge right for those things to be able to communicate with anything else that's in your home or for you to access them remotely or even to pair multiple devices to each other, a lot of these protocols only allow a, a one-to-one communication or one-to-many. And if you want to go beyond that, then you have to have some sort of bridging mechanism. So that's why Lutron uses a bridge. Insteon, same thing. Insteon has its own protocol, both wired and wireless, interestingly enough. They use a power line signal as well as a wireless protocol to mesh between their devices and communicate with their bridge that they also call a hub. They, they call their uh, system a hub. They've always called their system a hub. I would argue it's a bridge. And more recently ring came out with a bridge to connect its smart lighting products with your network. You can run and interconnect ring smart lighting products, but if you want them to be connected to the rest of your ring stuff, or to work with your other smart home devices, then you have to have the Ring Smart Lighting Bridge. So these are pretty popular examples of third-party communication protocols that are leveraging a bridge to then be able to talk with everything else. And then the third category that I thought of is Bluetooth. If you're using Bluetooth and you want those Bluetooth devices to get connected to the network somehow, then Many manufacturers have released bridges to accomplish that. And the problem here, and I think this is a problem, maybe everyone wouldn't agree with me, is that Bluetooth is not consistent. Well, Bluetooth is not compatible across vendors. Right. And the argument is that that's for security purposes, even though everyone's presumably leveraging the same Bluetooth profiles, the same device 
type categories and following a standard there and probably communicating with their devices similarly, if not to standard, they intentionally don't communicate with each other. So then each of those manufacturers needs to open or needs to expose their devices to the network through a bridge of their own. And the most classic example of this is that any Bluetooth lock you've had probably has some sort of custom branded bridge to make it available on the network. And I wanted to talk about why. Uh, and I think Bluetooth is a good example because it's something most people are pretty, um, you know, Bluetooth as a protocol is great. It's low power. We have it in all our cell phones, but it does not have a direct path to the internet. Bluetooth as a protocol does not have direct internet access. So any sort of remote access, any sort of firmware updates, things like that, you're either going to need to connect through a phone, which will act as kind of a bridge because it, it's communicating to the internet through your phone. Or if you want remote access to those devices, then you want to control them via uh, Amazon ecosystem or a Google ecosystem. Then you're going to need some sort of bridge like this. And, and we had a little experience here in um, we built the Schlage Sense Wi-Fi adapter, which is, that's what they call it. Also, it's a bridge, but, you know, I wasn't responsible for the branding or naming of that, just building the product. <laughs> so, you know, that Schlage came to us and wanted to add these capabilities to their lock, but they wanted to keep their team focused on locks. So uh, the team here at ConnectSense did all the hardware and firmware on that device. And if you go buy one of those in a Home Depot, that fully comes from our manufacturing partner. So a little bit of experience in this category. That's pretty cool. Now, I have other products that also have a bridge, and part of that might be to make them available to your voice systems or to the the rest of your smart home devices. It also might just be to fix the range problem, right? Bluetooth has a range problem. The Bluetooth solution for that is meshing, but the mesh standard took so long to get out that everybody either ended up waiting or doing their own thing. And I frankly don't know of any, you might, because you're more in the industry than I am, certainly, but I don't know of any manufacturer that has come out and said, yes, we are using the 5.0 spec mesh. I'm not aware of any. So getting that network extended oftentimes requires just getting your Bluetooth stuff connected to your network and let the network then carry that load. Eve Extend is a good example of that. Now, the range of Elgato Eve products when they first came out was absolutely terrible. So some of their products needed this just to be able to get them to talk to the rest of your smart home stuff, even if the rest of your smart home stuff was Eve related. But but they they've used Bluetooth as a, a way of communicating and then Wi-Fi as a way of extending that. My Smart Blinds is a product that I have, and they have a bridge that simply exists to let you connect it to your voice assistants. So there are a lot of reasons that you might want to have these bridges. They do serve a purpose. Even the most recent Wise Lock that recently came out requires a bridge. That bridge actually 
translates between Zigbee, which is what the lock uses, and makes that available to your Wi-Fi network. There's this weird category that's kind of caught in the middle, and I don't really know what to call it. I'm calling it a like a Trojan hub. And these are devices that you might have around your home that serve some other primary purpose, but they also happen to control or aggregate smart home stuff. And the probably most popular example of this is your voice assistant devices. Yeah, I know a couple of years ago, first uh, Amazon came out with kind of a special Echo. I don't remember what they called it. The Echo Plus, I believe it was. Yeah, which had uh, Zigbee in it. And then uh, as far as I know now, they just kind of skipped over that. And now everything just has Zigbee in it. Yeah, the newer, any new Google Nest device that's coming out that is a home controller of sorts or an assistant container does include Zigbee. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't include like the, I believe the Nest Hub, for example, does not have Zigbee in it. They do have Bluetooth radios in them, though. And this is kind of why I call these Trojans, because a lot of these things came out and we didn't really know what all they were capable of. And so Google Assistant, sure, you can use your Google Assistant with a Google Home or a Google Nest device. But it turns out that these things have radios in them, too. And most recently, we saw the C by GE collaboration with Google Home, where you could actually directly pair Bluetooth bulbs with a Google Home device, which is really cool. Yeah, I think in both of the the Google and Amazon cases, to properly utilize those radios today, you're having to certify devices and work pretty closely with them on that. So even the the Zigbee radios in the Amazon Echoes, I'm pretty sure there's a full certification program and things like that. We had looked into it at one point just to kind of see what it involved, but it certainly it, it appears to provide a pretty good experience. I haven't worked with it directly, but from what I've heard, it, it, it makes for a pretty seamless experience. So whether they have these radios in them or not, some of them are just using the cloud to connect to third-party services that then allow you to control your other devices. But these do act in many ways as a control and aggregation mechanism for your smart home devices. Other examples are Siri and HomeKit. Now, Siri and HomeKit arguably leverage a bridge device like your Apple TV or your HomePod or an iPad that is kind of always on and sitting around your home or mounted somewhere or or using its spare power to also act as a bridge for the HomeKit signals to be able to, again, mesh the Bluetooth stuff with the network and other Bluetooth devices. Yeah, and uh, you had it in the notes above, and I'll, I'll kind of comment on something before, which was that we at one time announced a a Bluetooth, we called it a Bluetooth range extender, but it was going to be a HomeKit Bluetooth hub, bridge, whatever you want to call it. But what happened there, and we still get questions every once in a while like, hey, are you ever going to release this product? 
What happened there was Apple kind of changed their mind. So at one point in the HomeKit spec, there was a a profile for that kind of device. And we announced one, Eva announced one. None of those ever came to fruition because Apple decided to take on this approach, which was to use Apple TV, HomePod, and iPad as those bridging hub devices. And so, you know, I think ultimately that was probably the right choice. It still stinks that, you know, there's a pretty high cost to having any of those be your bridge of choice. And uh, hopefully, eventually, they'll they'll bring that price down or offer some devices at a lower price that will perform the same function. But I think where that, that's particularly interesting in the HomeKit arena is that those devices all have pretty beefy processors. And just with some of the stuff that's going on with HomeKit's secure video and even some of the stuff that's recently leaked on iOS 14 potential features, they're actually able to push some of the machine learning type activities to those devices. I don't know this for a fact, but that's kind of what I'm assuming is that that's why they're able to do person detection and and some of the stuff that otherwise requires really expensive hardware on something like a Nest doorbell. They're able to push that off to an iOS device to do that work instead. So I think it's an interesting model that hopefully we'll see them lean in on even more and provide some advantage to the HomeKit ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. And and I to some extent I feel like Samsung is sort of doing the same thing. They're starting to build a processor and components of their hub and even Wi-Fi repeaters into devices that they're making. Samsung appliances, for example, many that you buy are smart things hubs that can act as the central processing and aggregation point for other devices that you would normally use with smart things. They're going to someday maybe have this Galaxy Home device. The Galaxy Home Mini is going to be available for sale overseas. We don't know if it's ever going to make it over here. And supposedly that is that, you know, maybe that's also going to be some sort of hub or bridge of a sorts. But its assistant, Bixby, is certainly intended to help you control and aggregate devices. And then the biggest Trojan of all, and I think this is the first time that I used that term about these devices, in my opinion, was the Ring Alarm. When the Ring Alarm was announced about a year and a half ago, what everybody was kind of mesmerized by was the incredibly disruptive pricing that they were offering. It was an inexpensive starting price of about $200, I believe, and even more disruptive monthly charge of just $10 a month for monitoring. But what a lot of people didn't notice was that the guts of that ring alarm was all the stuff that the Zonoff people had been engineering and working on for the last five years before they were even a part of Ring and brought into the IP that Ring is now leveraging when they built the Ring Alarm. The Ring Alarm is a hub with like five or six different radios in it. And they are slowly starting to enable its additional capabilities, not necessarily functioning as a traditional hub the way you might think of it, but 
trying to come up with device pairings and um, adding to the Ring ecosystem in a way that makes sense for customers, not just, oh, and we connect to all these different devices. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, I have a Ring Alarm. I've been impressed with it so far. So far, I've only paired it with their devices, but certainly we'll stay tuned to what else is possible there. And then finally, if you don't want another piece of hardware in your home, but you're still wondering, can I control multiple devices all together or get them to talk to each other outside of their own respective ecosystems? There are cloud services that allow you to do that. And I would define these as either an online app, so it could be done just locally through an app and the Wi-Fi radio and Bluetooth capabilities of the device that that app was running on, or a service that's in the cloud that would aggregate and or connect different devices and services through the cloud. Some examples that I can think of, probably the most familiar to everybody is IFTTT. Right? This is what they've been doing for years. You have something, it does something, and that something causes something else to do something. Simple recipes that you can create one-to-one, that's all it does. One thing triggers one other thing. My only major beef with uh, IFTTT is their business model. Because we were ready to do, we had the integration ready to go. Basically, how their business model works is they charge device manufacturers to put integrations on there. And I won't say the pricing, but it was significant. And ultimately, when I did the math, it didn't really seem worth it. Yeah. And and that's frustrating because I think that from a general consumer perspective, IFTTT is probably the most approachable of any of these services. It's probably the one that more people would know about beyond just techie folks who are into smart home. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I get it that somebody's got to pay the bills, but <laughs> uh, it just didn't seem like a, a winning equation. And and one of the weird things to me is that you can actually go on IFTTT and, uh, look at like how many people use a particular integration and even looking at some of the big, you know, people that have, you know, high volume stuff, you look at the number of people actually using those integrations and you're like, what? Like, how how does this, how does this look like ROI for this integration? So that's why it was a no for us. Hmm. Interesting. Now there was a third party product out that solved the biggest problem with IFTTT, which is that one-to-one called Stringify. And it let you create all sorts of complex flows where multiple things could happen and conditionally they could potentially trigger other multiple things. And you could do all kinds of crazy powerful stuff across ecosystems with this system. Ultimately, they were purchased by Comcast who took all that technology and used it to build their IoT offering and smart home connected logic that is now built into their solution for customers. And then they killed Stringify. So the consumer version of Stringify is no longer. And it was a pretty abrupt cutoff too. I I don't think that they by any means handled that gracefully. That 
was a little bit good for companies like Yanomi. I'm going to spell that because nobody would know how to spell that. Y-O-N-O-M-I. Yanomi is a small company based out of Boston, and I think they also have a Washington state office, if I recall. In Denver. Denver. Okay. that That's probably the other office then. I, I always forget where their other office is. And they have an app and services that do very similar stuff to what you might be able to do with, say, smart things, with really complicated automations or routines that have conditional logic and allow you to do multiple things and crust ecosystems. They don't work with as many ecosystems, but it's a very, very powerful system. And I've kind of been a fan of theirs since they first started out years and years ago with really just connecting three of the most popular ecosystems that were out there at the time. I think it was like Wemo, Hue, and one other, maybe Sonos. And now they work with over a dozen. And they have a system and a, and a model that I think is not too dissimilar from what your company does, Adam, where they have basically a, a, a platform. Right that they make available to third parties as a service to to provide the back end for their IoT stuff. Right. So yeah, I think we've actually worked with them. They were actually the the cloud on the previously mentioned um Schlage bridge and and then what powers a lot of Schlage's back end infrastructure. So, yeah, I think they have an interesting business model. There's kind of two major offerings from them. One being um, kind of a cloud infrastructure offering. And then the other one is kind of leveraging that Unomi connection piece. And you can actually bring that into your own app or there's uh, some other ways you can leverage that. So I think that's an interesting business model that you know works. So yeah, we talk to those guys pretty regularly. Great team over there and um, an interesting product. And we talked about that Unomi technology at CES because that's what's driving the Gentex Homelink technology. They're basically using that Yonomi app platform for their system. Now, the Yonomi consumer app is free. You can just download it and start using it to connect your different ecosystems. And it's one of the only ones that I'm aware of that can actually trigger off of events that occur in Insteon and then make something else happen in your home based on you maybe turning on an Insteon light, uh, which can be really powerful. Now, there are other things that are really just apps. There's maybe some services in the background, but these are largely just aggregator apps. I look at services like uh, or apps like Home Remote, Roomy Remote, that had at some point, I think, been called Simple Remote or something. They changed their name and then they went back to what they are now. And then uh, an app called Simple Commands. These are all apps that just connect a whole bunch of different things. And when you're home or when you're away remotely, you can then control all those things from one place. The point being, give you one way to control all of your stuff if you want to do it. And they're depending on the cloud to do most of that stuff. So that's kind of a survey of the different things that are out there. I want to hold off on kind of the the why and the pros and cons, because we'll talk about that next. 
So yeah, let's uh, let's take a quick break for our sponsors, and we'll return with some more smart home discussion. So, as Richard said, I think now in this section we're going to talk about kind of the case for or against hubs and bridges. We'll use them interchangeable for this, but do you want to have an extra layer of hardware in the mix? So I'm going to talk about, at least first, the case against it, because I see the need for some of these devices, but my preference would be a world without them. So I'm going to get into some of the reasons for that. There's arguments on both sides of this, but in general, a hub adds cost to a system. It's another piece of hardware that has to be manufactured. And the the flip side of this probably is the Lutron argument, which is that if you can put a less costly radio in your end devices and you're going to have enough end devices to justify it, the total cost of the system is less than putting a Wi-Fi radio, for example, into each end device. Or, or potentially more than just a Wi-Fi radio, right? Like like some of these devices are are including a, a Wi-Fi radio, a Bluetooth radio sometimes. It really depends on the goals of the manufacturer. Yes. I think that argument is somewhat crumbling, though, as the price of Wi-Fi continues to go down. We're now in a world where combo Wi-Fi BLE chipsets from manufacturers like Espressive are sub $1. And so as that price continues to drop, the argument to you know having a hub in the mix, I think, goes away. I think one of my other arguments here for a long time, and this actually just recently changed, was Z-Wave particularly had a single source for Z-Wave chips, which was Sigma uh, Sigma Design, Sigma Labs, something like that. Sigma Labs. Yep. Sigma... Fin- Silicon Labs. Silicon Labs? Something like that. Okay. Either way, one company was the only place you could get those chips. Anytime you have that sort of monopoly, you know, they control the whole market. Well, I think they realized that wasn't going to last. And so just earlier this year, they announced that they're going to open that to other manufacturers as well. And in my opinion, that'll probably extend the life of, of Z-Wave, but I don't know that it'll fully save them. My next point for a case against hubs and bridges is the end devices don't have a direct path to the internet. And to my previous point, you know, Wi-Fi devices, on the other hand, can be operated independently they can they ha- all have a direct path to the internet they can be updated at any time with any other devices so just a, a, a little bit cleaner and to the next point which is that but, but, but before, we, before we get off of that why is that good though cuz and you know and, and i don't necessarily want to turn this into a round robin but one of my points for the bridge is that it keeps the devices off the network Fair enough. I mean, that's all well and good as long as they can continue to talk to the bridge. Right. So, you know, it's uh, both sides to that argument, which to my next point, which is that hubs add complexity to the system. And 
if there is, it's then becomes a single point of failure. So, for example, a weird thing that's been going on with our Hue bulbs recently is uh, they no longer work with Amazon commands and they only respond to HomeKit commands. So I probably need to reset the bridge or whatever. Maybe it's not talking to the internet. I don't know. But, you know, it just it creates an extra point of troubleshooting. It's a point of you have to go through that device to do any updates. I feel like anytime I don't use the Hue app very often. Anytime I do, I have to update the hub. I have to update the the bulbs. Like it's a it's a whole mess. And the process of updating the bulbs because it's going over a very low bandwidth network can be very time consuming. I would agree with that. And, and and I think that companies need to figure out a way of handling that more uh more gracefully. And you know, just the same way that it's literally well, not literally because Windows 10 isn't really the 10th version of Windows, but let's say it's taken Microsoft 10 versions of Windows to figure out the right mix of when to do updates to your device. Right. Um, and then kind of my last point here is just hub fatigue. None of these can control everything. And so, and like we talked about earlier, you know, there's a ton of standalone proprietary hubs. So, I, you know, my question was, how many hubs do you have in your house? Just kind of quick guess off the top of your head. To me? Yeah. I want everybody to be thinking about this right now, but I know for a fact that I, using my definition of hubs and bridges, pretty much everything I talked about, I have. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's an exception case because I have these things so I can test them and so that I can talk about them. But I do have two hubs. I do have a security system that can also be a hub. I have these half a dozen different bridges that I talked about. So, yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah, I would guess I have four or five. It's probably more than that, though. More than one Ethernet switch's worth of hubs, meaning I to, an Ethernet switch with typically eight different things and you can power seven because one is going to be used to bring the network into that switch. I have more than seven things connected to my Ethernet. Do you have one place where they all are? Yes, I call it Hubland. Hubland. <laughs> it's in my attic. Yeah. That's why I probably don't know what all mine are because I know I have a few in my like TV cabinet. There might be one or two in the basement. I know my Lutron one is in our office for some reason. I don't even really know why it's in there other than there's a free Ethernet cord there. So yeah, they're kind of scattered throughout my house. I don't have a hub land. Well, and now that I think about it, for anything that is bridging Bluetooth, you have to have that near your device. Right. So I have my, my smart blinds bridge in my bedroom because that's where the blinds are that I want to be able to control. And I have my August lock bridge or Wi-Fi adapter near the door where I have the August lap. So yeah, there's even more. I do want to touch on one more point on complexity too, before we talk about, before we give it you the, uh, the floor and you can talk about how great bridges and hubs are <laughs> is complexity of like mesh networking. Like you and I are both pretty technical people. 
like the troubleshooting and like truly setting up a mesh correctly, I feel like is beyond most people. The proper way to set up a mesh network involves like, I don't even know what tools, measurements, you know, putting things at the right places. And I think for a normal person to be dealing with that is just like a total lost cause. Well, now, are you talking about mesh networks as in your mesh network Wi-Fi system? No. Or mesh networking for different smart home devices? I'm talking about Zigbee and Z-Wave, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, I know you and I are in a Slack group where we we talk a lot about stuff with HomeKit. And, uh, you know, I'm constantly seeing my Hue bulbs fall off of HomeKit. And it's not HomeKit. I go into the Hue app and, oh, yeah, it just can't see this bulb for some reason that I know is within 30 feet of the other bulb and there's no wall between them because they're outside. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where, you know, we mentioned earlier that some of these ecosystems that use bridges and hubs are pro ecosystems. I think that's that's a place for it because it truly takes a professional that knows and has an intimate understanding of these things to troubleshoot and maintain these and set them up properly. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it takes a level of technical expertise and patience and um, willingness to to regularly console your spouse when stuff isn't working the way everybody expects it to. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, like, I know I've talked about this before, but, you know, when I come home from work, I don't want to be an IT administrator. I don't want to be doing technical (laughs) support and maintaining all this stuff. Like, I got enough stuff. Like, I want to relax. And sometimes I don't even want to put in, like, simple DIY stuff. Like, I have a whole pile of smart home projects that are to be done that I just have to be in the right mood to crank through some of those. But I certainly don't want to come home on a regular basis and have, you know, the honeydew list of problems with our smart home. So that's why I avoid some of this stuff to date is because I don't need another job. As you're saying that, I'm laughing because since my last contract ended, most of my free time has gone to smart home projects, either setting them up or correcting stuff that hasn't been working. I have actually been putting a list together thinking, when's the next time Adam and I are going to go over what's going on in our smart homes? Because I need another whole episode. We'll have to, we'll have to check on that. And uh, when it's hit about six months, we'll have to uh, do another uh, what's in your smart home episode. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, you make a lot of good points there. And again, you're looking at this from a whole bunch of different perspectives, not just from the consumer perspective, but also from the manufacturer perspective. And part of that is cost and part of that is complexity. And part of that is also support. Like you have to have a support model that can help consumers deal with some of these problems and complexities. All right. So tell us why bridges and hubs are awesome. All right. So not surprisingly, I am pro hub. I am all about the hub. And primarily for me, it comes down to the types of complex logic that they allow you to accomplish. So, you know, I'm going to go through a bunch of different 
reasons that I think that these are good. But you know, I have a core reason, which is that, I, you know, ultimately I have a goal where I, I want a central system. And we'll talk more about the concept of a single central system. But, you know, if you look at the different ecosystems out there, the best lighting control ecosystems that you can buy as a consumer today all use some sort of hub or bridge. Lutron, Hue, Instian. These are really good, really powerful lighting ecosystems that are all based on a hub and spoke model. I think there is a point here to say that there is some reliability that comes from a manufacturer fully controlling the entire experience. And that's good, but then that breaks down when you want that ecosystem to work with other stuff, right? And and so that bridge helps these things all work together and then it makes it available on the network. Now you have to figure out, okay, well, how do these bridges then expose their stuff to other ecosystems? How can I control them and, and use these devices with other things in my home? Let's say, like I gave the example earlier, I want to be able to use the instance or the, the event of me turning on an Insteon light switch to, in addition to that light it just turned on, also maybe, I don't know, raise or lower the blinds or something like that. And for that, you need some place to to house the logic and drive the logic to do all that stuff. I'll get back to that again in, well, no, actually, I won't give it. I'll, I'll talk about that now. You could do that on the cloud. You could absolutely do that on the cloud. But there is more and more of a drive, and a lot of this comes down to privacy and security and reliability. There's more and more of a kind of consumer desire, particularly in the hobbyist space, to control things locally when you can. And a physical device in your home, like a hub, allows you to potentially do that. We're seeing smart things, as an example, provide more and more local control that where the hub is sending out commands locally to devices instead of relying on cloud services to do it when it has that ability to do it. Hubitat is based on that model. That's their whole premise is that you can control all this stuff directly without having to touch the cloud if you don't want to. You still can, but you don't have to. HomeKit is that way. You know, it, it talks primarily on the local network. That's right. That's right. Now remember, HomeKit's one of these things that does use a bridge. It has to if you want to be able to talk to other Wi-Fi devices, if you want to be able to have logic somewhere, if you want to be able to get to stuff remotely. It's just that their bridge is embedded in other devices. Now, you talked about having the devices on the network as a good thing. I think it's a bad thing. I think that's a bad thing for a number of reasons. I think these devices are harder to manage when they're on your router. Right. And a lot of that has to do with the user experience associated with managing your router. Most people don't even know how to manage their router. But if they do, the experience that you have in doing so is usually subpar. I just paid Verizon $250 to replace my literally 10-year-old technology router that they had in my home 
with their new state-of-the-art Wi-Fi 6 router. I have to pay for that now. It's no longer free. So I paid them to come and and put it in. I, I didn't pay for the installation. I paid for the device itself. The router doesn't have a certificate. To log into it, I have to go through all of my browser's warnings that this is not secure. Like they couldn't bother to put a certificate on it. Then when I get into it, the screen for managing devices, if I can eventually figure out where it is, is laid out in such a way that I see one and a half devices per screen that I'm looking at. And there isn't a way of organizing them. There isn't a category for IoT device or smart home device. There's a category for a NAS. Like, yeah. most people don't even know what a NAS is. I mean, these these devices are terrible for managing devices. I refuse. I refuse to get anybody's, you know, equipment. I want to manage all my own equipment. <laughs> I actually just went with, through this with Comcast the other day. We've been having an issue where, surprise, surprise, we go off our monthly over our monthly bandwidth allotment, you know, when you have three kids on iPads and two adults that are streaming things and, you know, gaming and phones and tablets and, you know, whatever, we, we've we been going over the bandwidth cap. And long story short, they said, well, you can have unlimited bandwidth for $25 a month if you use our device. Or uh, if you want to use your own modem, it's $50 a month. Which is total garbage. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I know for a fact that Comcast does this, like, Trojan horse thing where they share your network and, you know, other people can get on it. And I refuse to have that thing in my house. So, you know, it's it's Eros and uh, and a, a my own modem until they come and take it from me. Yep. The funny thing there, though, was as part of that conversation, they go, well how many devices do you have on your Wi-Fi network? And I'm like, lady, I'm not even getting into this with you because you're going to fall out of your chair. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. Yeah. Yeah. I have 102 and most of my smart home stuff is not Wi-Fi smart home stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I think to to manage that many, you need a mesh Wi-Fi system of some sort because one single router is not going to be able to handle all that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I get that point, but I feel like the technology is stepping up to handle that challenge. We'll see if it continues to scale and and manage, but I'm having no problems in in my current setup. So what's with the, what's, you know, I I don't know the technology behind this, but I have certainly heard many times people argue that Look, Wi-Fi was not designed to handle the type of traffic that IoT devices introduce in a network. This model of dozens, maybe hundreds of small packets that need to get through immediately, as opposed to larger streams or packets of information that you might see if, for example, you're streaming something or you're you know, working on your computer or something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't say I know enough about routers to fully comment on that. But that's to say, I I think it's getting there. And I think that's also why you're seeing things like HomeKit managed routers, 
because I think one of the challenges with HomeKit was keeping devices on the network. And so I would guess that's one of the reasons why Apple got into that game. I've played around just a little bit with that. I, I added this to my Eros. I was very disappointed to find out that my smart TV, which is HomeKit compatible, was not one of the devices. I sent my angry feedback, radar, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I pretty rarely give user feedback through my official Apple channels. This one, I went through my official Apple channels and, and handed over some user feedback to engineers and MFI <laughs> people. Because I feel like the you know one of the use cases of the, the HomeKit router thing, sorry, going off on a tangent, is to be able to block traffic from devices and only support HomeKit. Well, everything I've heard about smart TVs is that they do all kinds of terrible things in terms of phoning home. And one of my suspicions to my bandwidth cap problem was that my smart TV, even though I am not streaming anything on it, I use an Apple TV for that, was sending device information over the network what we're watching stuff like that mm -hmm. and so i was trying to shut that down using the the HomeKit smart router thing well i ended up just making an eero profile for it and pausing it but that in theory also kills my HomeKit functionality mm. so so yeah but that's all to say i think HomeKit routers is one way that apple's trying to manage this challenge of of keeping so many devices on the network I think for most IoT devices, they're not requiring a lot of bandwidth and can also kind of intelligently sleep and wake. But that comes down to the device manufacturer doing that in a smart way to keep the devices online and to make sure they're not overly chatty. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that those are kind of my thoughts on you know, keeping the devices off the network. Maybe there's some advantage to that. Even being able to use the devices if your network isn't functioning properly might be a good thing for some ecosystems, depending on how reliable your network is. So I also want to think, you know, I take the counter argument that you made where you have a single point of failure. I look at that as a single troubleshooting point. I look at that as, okay, well, if I, I know that the problems I'm experiencing are specific to my devices on my Hue bridge, then that's where I need to troubleshoot the problem. That's where I need to, you know, kind of put my effort into figuring out how to solve what's going on. And, and I, I think that can be really helpful. I, I I know, for example, that, and this is probably one of the most useful tools I've seen in any smart home ecosystem yet. There's a history log in the SmartThings app that lets you look at every event that's occurred that it's aware of. That is incredibly powerful. And I'm not getting that from direct Wi-Fi connected devices, unless they're connected to smart things as well. Yep. Fair enough. So, uh, you know, I, I think, I think these are all solvable problems as you've suggested, you know, battery life is an argument that a lot of people used to make that, oh, well, you know, Wi-Fi battery life isn't as good as some of these other things that's changing. That's slowly becoming less of an issue as, Technology is improving 
low energy capabilities in Wi-Fi chips. So I don't think that that's going to be a long-term problem either, but I do think it's something that currently makes some other ecosystems or some other radios more attractive on devices. And so, you know, you look at all these different reasons and, and to me, I, I think that there's a, an argument to be made that in some cases, a hub makes sense. Maybe it's that a hub makes sense if you're doing more complex things in your smart home. Maybe the average consumer doesn't need it, but if you're doing more heavy duty smart home stuff, then maybe you do really need to be looking at some sort of hub or bridge solution and be careful about pushing back too hard on a bridge and say, oh, well, I don't want another hub when that bridge is really the only way that the manufacturer today can get that connected device to communicate with the network. Because we have seen this kind of you know decline in hub interest in consumers, whether it's companies going away or consumers not buying the things or consumers not understanding the devices. And the other trend that we're seeing is that companies like Signify with their Philips Hue brand and Sengled and SmartThings are now diversifying their line to also offer products that work without their bridges, without their hubs. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a case where people can vote with their wallets and see what works well, you know, and um, certainly resources like CNET and Wirecutter, you know, offer some good recommendations and do some really thorough testing and as well as, you know, you do on um, on your site as well. So I think, you know, the the markets will decide and we'll see long term where where these things go. You know, I think there are I have some hubs in my house. There are some solutions I still have there. And, um, you know, while I prefer hubless solutions, I see the argument for it in certain places. And I can see the argument against it in certain places. So we can get along. Yes. We can still be friends. Now, we both hinted at this big question. And so we're going to close this episode with a question to each of us. You actually wrote this down, and I love the way that you wrote this because it just kind of adds a clever spin to it. If Thanos snapped his fingers and only one smart home ecosystem was left, the rest all just withered away, drifted away in the black smoke, which would you choose to remain? In other words, if if there were only one ecosystem, what's the one ecosystem that you think is the one that can work best for you? Yeah, what made me think of this question was uh, there was recently a CNET, I believe, article. Um, we can add it in the show notes uh, about basically declaring that HomeKit is the best ecosystem and kind of going through the reasons for that. Is that your answer? Well, it is not my answer. Oh, so uh, you know, while I do like HomeKit, and, and I tweeted a little bit about this, I think the number one thing holding HomeKit back is lack of a. $50 or less smart speaker. One of the reasons why Amazon has taken hold in our home as the dominant ecosystem is the fact that 
I just kept buying dots or getting them for free at things. Or <laughs> right, twenty five dollar dots or dot with an app with a purchase. Yep. Yeah, yep, yeah. So I mean, you know, woke up one day and there were whatever ten plus Echo devices in my home <laughs> scattered throughout. It's in each of my kids' bedrooms. You know, uh, I just put up some of those Echo flexes in some areas where the kids hang out. So we can use the intercom functionality. So yeah, slowly and cheaply, you know, that, that Amazon ecosystem kind of took over. And so while I don't think it is the best technical ecosystem, I think it's good enough. And for that reason alone of a pervasive speaker ecosystem, I would, I would have to choose Amazon. Mm, wow. How about you? Well, I'm going to caveat this by saying that I don't think there is one system out there that would meet all my needs. And that's my big frustration. Thanos doesn't care. I know. Thanos says you have to pick one. I know. I have to pick one. I know I have to pick one. My pick doesn't address all my needs by any means. In fact, it addresses probably fewer of my needs than I would want any other system to. But um, I'm going to pick Insteon. My lighting control system is the predominant thing in my home. It's what has more nodes than anything else in my home. And even though it doesn't work with everything, and even though we're still waiting for next generation stuff from them, I think it is the most reliable and most comprehensive collection of things that I've used that I would want to still have in my home. If everything else had to be an island, I could deal with it. Yeah. So I would have guessed that that would have been your pick. Yeah. But, but yeah, there isn't one system. And, and I think we could do an entire episode one time about why one system doesn't solve most consumers problems. Uh, there are too many gaps and, and nobody has managed to overlap properly uh, to solve those problems. Yep. Put it on the episode list. <laughs> so if you have a smart home question for us, you can send it our way using the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow. And uh, we'll try to pick a question here to include in this section of the show. All right. Well, this was a fun and lively discussion, Adam. I appreciate your participation in this as always. And if people want to hear more of your opinions and find out more about what you do, day after day and um, have to say, where are they going to find all that stuff? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice. And, uh, you know, I go through spurts where I tweet more often than not. But, uh, you know, I mentioned a couple of things here that that I think I every once in a while I get uh, my Twitter fingers going and, and comment on some stuff uh, smart home related. And then everything my company's doing, you can find at ConnectSense.com. All right. Very good. And you can find me at Richard Gunther on Twitter. And uh, I've been there a lot these days with my various voices. And you can find everything I'm writing about and the other shows that I do at the digitalmediazone.com. The Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm, which is a collection of tech podcasts that also includes Home Tech FM, The Food Tech Show, and my other show, Home On. And smarthome.fm is where you can find our show notes and details about each episode. 
You can find us in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and anywhere else that you find podcasts. And do us a favor. If you like the show, leave us a rating or review and tell a friend. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in.